Action Park Media. Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. I hate to ask you to do anything, but if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, review, all of the above on whatever app you're getting it from. Josh Miller, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. I'm interested in all perspectives about health and weight loss and not even necessarily weight loss, but just like body perception. Like oh. this is a very interesting thing to me. I, I, I've had a couple trans gals on and like, it's very interesting to me to talk to them about, you know, like having this perception of yourself and then making the changes that you think will create this sense of happiness. And then how do you feel? Because I still having made some kind of a transformation deal with all the garbage that I dealt with before. I, maybe it's quieter. Right. Well, I mean, well, first of all, kudos to you for bringing trans people on your show. Inclusivity, visibility, acceptance. Thank you. Very, very important because it's really talk about bodies that are in danger, you know, physical danger for being whether you're in transition or have transition or you're just gender queer and you it's not about changing the outside to match your insides it's about fluidity between the two which i think is really fascinating thankfully people like you and other people are talking about these things um, in relationship to health because i think obviously in the trans community there is so much mental health issues um drug addiction issues and um Fearing for your life, really. So many people are trans are are on the streets, you know, or have been on the streets. And and sexual health and mental health and drug health obviously is paramount. And obviously, you know, there's there's so there's so much there's so many there's so few resources to help those people. Um, I grew up in LA in the 80s and 90s, and if you remember, I'm sure you do, but I would drive with my mom down Santa Monica Boulevard and I would see the hustlers on the street. I mean, there, there was no websites to find anybody you wanted to meet or score whatever you wanted to score, whether it be a physical experience or something else. But, and then there was, of course, all the various transsexual, trans, genderqueer people that were selling themselves or looking for dr drugs. And I, I mean, it was everywhere to me growing Dude, up. Dude, I think it became a Trader Joe's. I don't know if it's still a Trader Joe's, but there oh, yeah. was a, that parking lot on Santa Monica. One night I was a teenager driving home and it just looked like what's happening in this parking lot. This is this is what you this is like what the 70s told us um Times Square looked like or wherever the 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 street walkers I don't know how to properly what what moniker to properly tack on sex people worker. sex workers is the sex workers yes best uh politically compassionate way to describe it so we see this just like meat market kind of a venue of gals standing in this parking lot and and me me and my buddy our jaws dropped because this was not some regular site but it was all trans gals i mean you're reminding me of that spot and there was the mexican restaurant in the center of the parking lot that had those amazing burritos the yeah. burritos across from gower studios right not gower That's studio right. whatever the next to formosa yeah i don't know the name of that studio either but yeah, yeah right there right lot. Yeah. Um, so I was always exposed to it. And I had, when I first got sober, when I, my, my first attempt at sobriety, when I was 17, I had met, uh, a person who became my sponsor and he was in a Gloria Estefan video called turn the beat around, which was a bunch of, this is like pre RuPaul, a bunch of drag Queens coming down the runway and dare in various looks of Gloria Estefan. And, you know, so I was exposed to that, um, my own experience was I used to play with the gender myself, like many kids do, whether they're queer, or straight or whatever. I think at that age, because, you know, we're talking about the body and I think you're 
your relationship to your body is, I think, constantly in flux. Uh, and I think it's on a spectrum, right? And over the years, it changes. But as a young person, I was really androgynous looking. That didn't last. Um, with the beard, for those who can't see what's going on here. Um, and uh, I was actually like a pretty smooth kid, you know, even till 14. And I was able to kind of pass, weirdly enough, between like two realms. Like there was like a very feminine and masculine energy about me, but you could also sense that that I wasn't probably a straight heterosexual male, right? So, um, but when I was about 10, I used to, my, I would carpool to school with my friends and they were well-to-do people and they had these like really lavish walk-in closets. And I was really excited to go in them and basically raid the closets with amazing fashion and high heels and get all my friends to get dressed up. And uh, we'd run around their house. Unfortunately, my mom got a call one day and I remember this. I'm not going to say the name, but I can remember the, the kid, his mother's name. And I can remember where I was sitting in my mother's house. And the call was, I'm sorry, we can't carpool your son anymore to the Lycée Francais. He is causing problems for our children and he is ruining all my heels. <laughs> and I, at that moment... I think was the moment of like ostracization and my body feeling like I was wrong and that yeah. this body was wrong and that what I wanted to do with this body was wrong and that exploring my gender or playing with gender, having fun, exploring feminine things. It doesn't even have to be about gender assignment. It's just literally about you're a kid, you're in Sushant, you have that freedom. I was punished. The body was bad. You are bad. And that feeling of, I internalized that feeling for the rest of my life. And it just got corroborated over and over by society, by religion, by politics, where what was natural to me was seen as unnatural by the status quo. And that became my battle. And I think in interesting ways, the symptoms of some that kind of repression and oppression and, and suppression, all the shins were basically related to like, that was one of the first moments. Yeah. And there's endless stories related after that. But I think then that also turned into body issues and relationship to the body and health and hurting your body and weight issues and on and on and on. Yeah. I mean, I had a very similar experience um, with, this at a very young age feeling like the first uh, moment that I was aware that I had a body, even, you know, there was just, I'm alive and I'm moving through life as a little kid. And then there was like, no, this thing, this body of yours is wrong and you are treating it or you, you are creating it in a way that is bad. And so we're going to, fix you basically became the pattern of my youth was like, how do we fix you? And this like, uh, you know, to say I'm not, I'm not still dealing with it now is it would be a lie because every day there's just a new, like, how are we going to hold this together still? Well, you and I were both actors at a young age, right? You're still acting. I'm, I'm singing in the shower at this point. That's the extent of my career. Um, in terms of acting, um, although I think writing sometimes is performative and stuff like that. But but can we talk for a minute about how, like, when we met, I was slightly enamored by you simply because you were in two of my absolute favorite movies, River's Edge and Near Dark is the greatest vampire movie ever made, in my opinion. I think so. And that you, even at that young age, because we were teenagers when we met, had this, like, pedigree as an actor of like punk rock edgy hardcore it was awesome <laughs> okay now i can die if anyone's called me punk rock i've 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 i made it to cool dude if, river's edge and near dark <laughs> it doesn't get more punk rock than those two movies in I, I was i was a child in a punk band basically yeah you, you know, if you had if you had also been in the early, the late 80s suburbia, I would like I would have fainted. Right. Well, I wasn't Teen Witch. So, you know, uh, right. I um, thank you. Look, uh, but that's interesting when you bring up those movies, because, you know, when did you start acting? 17. 
Okay, so I obviously started before you. I mean, Toby started my Toby. How old was Toby when he started? Gosh, like nine, two, like nine, ten. Okay, so we so. were all like that age, right? I didn't know them then, and I didn't know you then, unfortunately. Um, but when I was that age, talk about like emphasis on body, right? So your teeth. Like there was a doctor, his name was Dr. Smith. He was on Sunset Boulevard in Doheny and he made something called flippers, which were basically when your teeth fell out as a kid, which normally happens, you would have fake teeth to go in. So when you went out for the audition for cereal, which was only full of sugar, you would have fake teeth to show them that you had this beautiful smile. I refused to, I had flippers, but I always broke them. I lost them, et cetera, et cetera. So immediately at nine, I was already like, your body is a problem. Your body's also a commodity, which is a really weird thing to think about at nine years old. I mean, you don't understand that intellectually, but you figure it out. Um, You know, then you go through puberty and your voice changes and suddenly you're a different kind of commodity. Do they want that commodity? Then you start to question your sexuality. And at that point, there were no roles for young gay people. So it became like sort of an avalanche of issues. And then I just decided to go write a book, which is really what brought us together. Yeah. Because I think I was working on the book and through friends, you know, whether it was Brie or other people, all whatever group of friends we had at that time, I think that's how we met. And that's how I came to them. They were, Oh, he's writing a novel. He's kind of cool. And I guess, obviously, as you say, I came with a body of work behind me. Um, So, yeah. A punk rock body of work. A punk rock. And I am going to hold on to that. Thank you. Yeah, you should, <laughs> dude. I would wear that like pride so okay. much. I will. I will. Yeah. What has been your solution? Like, you know, because we, I think we both come to a point and you're a sober guy too. And I'm a sober guy. And like where you kind of go like, okay, well, whatever happened to me, it's now up to me to figure out the rest of my life. And so what does that look like for you? In terms of like sobriety in the body? and like Yeah. And yeah. And the body, sobriety, the body, like what are, what are your workarounds for all of this? Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Okay. Well, let me back up just a little bit. I think I, Look, I, I come, we talked about this, I think, once before, you and I recently, about like sort of the epigenetics of being a Jew. Yeah. And um, while my mother was very dramatic and most of the people in my family were very dramatic people, I often feel like it's biological too. And it's, so it's like nurture nature kind of thing. So I grew up with a, definitely a high level of theatrical energy, right? Um, and then you couple that with, uh, growing up gay or bisexual, and then you have the AIDS crisis. So AIDS for me is what really terrified me about my body more than anything. Um, you know, I was a young actor at the time in the late eighties and early nineties. So I was around older people all the time, whether with my family or through work. And the first person I met, I had done a TV pilot for Fox with Anthony Perkins and he and I got very close on the set. He was incredibly nurturing. He became like sort of a mentor. And then, you know, a couple of months after we shot the pilot, he's dead of AIDS. You know, I mean, that was just devastating. And then it just began to be a domino effect. And that was my world. So the idea of my body being a ticking time bomb was a suffocating and really traumatic. You know, and I think, like you said, some of the body issues that we dealt with then we're still processing. I'm still processing the trauma related to being so stressed out for so long that I was going to maybe catch AIDS. Right. The flip side of that is it made me hyper aware about my body and paying attention to my body and paying attention to my health, which is why I got sober so young. Also, I was the son of an alcoholic and a drug addict. And so I didn't want to churn into that road. My mom was always dealing with weight issues. So I didn't want to go down that road. So I was hyper aware that my body was a very important thing to take care of. So sobriety was sort of a a next step. And I met the drag queen I told you about at a a midnight AA meeting on Santa Monica Boulevard above Rage. Yeah, I was just coming off of like Molly at the time or whatever it was called E 
And um, he said, you know, you've got to, you're sober one day and now we're going to, I'm going to take you to rage. By the way, I'm 18 at this point, but you know, when you're recognizable in LA, you get into any club, right? Um, which is a blessing and a curse anyway. And I just danced at rage my first day of sobriety in a group of people. And I was like, wow, this sobriety is cool. He's like, well, that's what you need. You know, I'm a native American. We have sweat lodges. Well, as a gay native American, we're going to dance on the dance floor and you're going to sweat out all your drama and all your toxins. And I, I, I sort of got it. I mean, sobriety certainly turned into like, Oh, going to all the underground gay dance clubs for the first year of my sobriety. Right. Um, once again, I think that's related to the body. It was a way of like physically getting out the trauma uh, and toxins in my body. Um, yeah, is, there, is there also something to just finding a replacement? Like, j- like I'm going to just dance do this instead. A, yeah. The I, dance became a replacement. Absolutely. I, there's a high in that when you get on the dance floor and you're dancing from like 10 to two. I had been a ballet dancer when I was from, I was in the Los Angeles ballet from 10 to 14. So I had a dancing background, which, you know, a lot of people don't know about. And so during the pandemic, I was I didn't want to go to the gym, uh, nor was it recommended, nor could you at certain stages of the pandemic, uh, which unfortunately is still going on. And um, I hired a good friend of a friend who was a Vogue, voguing instructor. And I vogued in my backyard for the whole entire pandemic. That's awesome. I kid you not. You know, I used to say, I posted this once on uh, Instagram, but like people think I'm going to lose my mind after my mom has passed away. And I guess maybe I have, I don't know. I'm voguing in my backyard. And, but it was a replacement. It helped handle the anxiety. Um, It helped me stay in shape to a degree because something interesting happened. You know, when my mom died, suddenly my body took a very sharp left turn. Um, My blood pressure went up. I was overweight. Um, I was starting to have weirdly similar issues that caused her to die. So I had to immediately reverse everything, which uh, was watch my sugar intake really kick. Cause they wanted to put me on all these like pills. And I was like, I'm not taking all these pills to prevent diabetes and this and that and cholesterol. I had a very good, I had two doctors and I had a really good younger doctor who was more open to Eastern medicine or alternative approaches. And he was like, no, you don't need to go on a pre-diabetic medicine, we're just going to get you to burn more and to eat better. Yeah, and that's what I did. And I turned I turned my numbers around. I have a question about your mom. I I I've met her, but I didn't never know her very well. But she struck me as like a beauty queen mm. from a generation before ours. Yes. Okay. So, what were the struggles with weight about? Is that is that something you think where she worked her ass off to maintain some figure and then it just became difficult. I think it's a combination of things. We, you know, we've loosely talked about this, but my mother's weight is what ultimately led to her demise. She fell and she was having trouble with her balance. And that fall precipitated her death a week later, uh, which was probably related to a blood clot that got loose in her body. Um, But her body was already, I don't want to say atrophy, but like was had so many other internal issues because of her weight. I think the weight is related to a multitude of, of things. If I go back to the beginning, I think it was the pressure of being a beauty queen in Hollywood and being a woman and that pressure to always stay skinny. I think growing up, I could name the chapters of my life growing up by the diets that she was on. Lemon maple syrup, the cabbage diet. Jenny Craig, the just lemonade diet, the melon diet, Atkins, macrobiotic. I told you recently her last diet was macrobiotic and she was in a bathtub full of cabbage and kelp having hot water poured on her. And this was somehow drawing out toxins and fat or something like that. Exactly. And I think the macrobiotic diet actually really did help heal some other issues with her, but she loved her food. Yeah. A really hard time maintaining. So to answer your question, what do I think happened? I mean, I'll be very honest. I think she had heartbreak. Right. I think she was in New York 9-11 and there was multiple deaths that were related to our family. And my dad had just passed. And I can honestly say from that moment on is when the weight took over. And 
uh, I think she died of a broken heart. And I think her broken heart was related to many people, but I think the way she consoled herself was with food. Yeah. And I, I was literally sitting with her in a there. I finally had dragged her to a therapist's office. I can't believe I'm talking about this, but hopefully it'll help people if they hear it from other people. Right. I had taken her to a behavior therapist the week before she died after the fall, because I felt enough is enough. And we had a whole plan for her to go into an outpatient treatment for weight. Uh, we had a whole plan to help her get on a different food plan. So everything was laid out. This was my one of many, many attempts to try to save her. Unfortunately, a week later, she passed right before she was going to start all of this. Right. So to answer your question, I think she died of heartbreak. But in addition, I think the pressure of having been a bombshell, having been a Playboy centerfold, I mean... We were all at the Playboy Mansion together, all of us. You know, yeah. you probably saw my mom there, not in the grotto, but you know, <laughs> right, but mingling, <laughs> mingling, <laughs> very tame New Year's Eve parties. Okay, like, this is before <laughs> they weren't that tame. Well, this is before it got tacky. Later on, we you, you and I and every, the whole gang and the other people got there right before it got to that like that TV series with the triplets and all that tackiness. Yes. I don't think we showed up for any of that. No, no, no. God, no. No, it was it was like right after a divorce or something, right? Yes. When it opened back up. Exactly. This was like 98 to like 2001 at the latest, right? Yeah. And it was this rare little moment. But that place, the mansion, was a celebration of the body. You know, believe it or not, as untamed as the parties might have seemed at that time, it was pretty predominantly, and this may be a controversial opinion, pretty wholesome at the Playboy Mansion for the most yeah. part. Yeah, there was food, and and there were um, there were the parties where uh, where you were meant to come in uh, night dress. Yeah, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't sleazy. No, not at all. Um, but to answer your question about my mom, I think it was that, and I think the pressure of having place so much importance on her weight. You know, remember, my grandfather was a glamour photographer in Hollywood, one of the most well-known glamour photographer, fashion photographers, nude photographers. The idea of the body and of perfection and was a great weight, literally, sorry, pun intended, on my mother's life. Yeah. And I think growing older in Los Angeles and not being as beautiful as somebody was once, once was in their youth, um, took a toll as well. Well, you see what, you know, I think there's less emphasis today on severe thinness. Like yeah. we had when we were young, it was like very much like Twiggy was a thing. And now you see slightly healthier looking gals. But um, even now, the difference between like what women do to try to maintain youth in Hollywood versus what men, how men are allowed to kind of age a little bit more naturally. That's still a very, like you look at stuff and you're just like, you can see that there's stuff being injected and filled. And I'm sure men do that too. It's just not quite as obvious or as much. I won't say what actor I just saw on a, on a red carpet, but holy moly. I mean, he looked like anime. Right. Yeah. The guys do it too. And, and, and he's very young and handsome. And I was like, why is he doing this? This is so weird. Look, uh, you know, Hollywood's always been to some degree, right? Obviously artifice. And that's just part of the world we're in. I mean, look, as a gay man in the gay community, the emphasis on the perfect body is toxic. It well, this is a wild thing, too, because, you know, I've always only been interested um, or attracted to women, but I have found that going to the gym and spending a lot of time in the gym, I'm never looking at girls in the gym ever. I'm only looking at like, look at, look at how good that dude's traps are, or look at his triceps or whatever it is. You know what I mean? It's a fascination. And right, yeah. the compliments I get off of uh, from what I've done coming from guys somehow mean a lot more. So I can only imagine if you couple that in with sexuality as well, Oh. It's got to amplify it. Oh, it's well, what's that saying? Women only dress for other women, not for men. Right. It's the same thing 
we work, I mean, look, we want to attract the opposite or same sex, but in terms of mostly like straight guys and they, they try to outdo each other or try to inspire each other. And I, I think that is probably healthy to some extent. I think in the gay community, it's very complicated. And there is such an emphasis on this perfect body that um, I carry, I carry around that. Oh my God, uh, way too much. You know, I mean, there's, there's 15 pounds I've been trying to get rid of for 15 years. It's these elusive 15 pounds that I'm chasing. Yeah, it's like Macbeth stain. It, you know, it, it just won't. That's the most disturbing image, and you're absolutely right. And I'm going to go like jump off a cliff right now. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that distilled it, right? It is that stain. And it's like, it's not a stain. I am beautiful with that stain, yeah. right? You say, what are the workarounds? It's, it's, it's cognitive behavior therapy. It's, it's talking back to those kind of thoughts. It's, you know, being around maybe, uh, you know, not that I ever am, but like, let's say I was at a pool party with 20, like he men in speedos, you know, well, I wrote a book. <laughs> well, I, I remember when I, I was nowhere near as happy as I am today physically. And I, and, and I don't like, strange people touching me, but I was with Brandy and Nap, and she was like, we're both getting massages. And I was like, this makes me so uncomfortable. And she said, I booked it. You're getting a massage. And I remember being in like some changing area and another person walked in and I just tried to flex. Cause this is when, when I was riding bike, bicycles a lot. So I just flexed my calves hoping like that will distract him. And all of the mess up here will be invisible. Wow. Yeah. You, you know, I, oh, I get it. I mean, I, I have these really amazing jeans that I really wanted, but they're probably two sizes too small, <laughs> but they're what you call aspirational jeans. I think these are not aspirational. These are jeans that are, well, they're never going to be real. It's, it's a delusion. But anyway, I sometimes wear them once in a while and I just have the, the big enough shirt to wear it, and I just have the zipper down and I kind of tuck in the, the, the button and, um, I make sure when I get up, like I'm holding on to my jeans so they don't fall. And then I had to go to an event the other night and I wore them and I had to get out of the, the, the car kind of like arms akimbo, but couldn't give my car key valet car key to the valet guy because I felt that the jeans would fall down. So I had to kind of do this sort of like contortionist move to hold my jeans. I mean, this is crazy. It's crazy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's you know, I could have just worn sweats to the event. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and the truth is, I'm not overweight it, it, to, compared to the rest of the world. I'm doing more for my body than ever. And yet you never feel like it's enough. And I think that this is cultural, obviously. I think in L.A. everything is I think the world's problems are amplified sometimes in Los Angeles. Do you know, it's like take all the problems and just L.A. just. High, you know, it, it's sort of uh, the highest decibel. Yeah, is here, and so I think that's just the world we live in. Unfortunately, um, the not feeling enough. But you know, like I said, I think some of that's it's it, you know, you the culture can say what they want. The Instagram could put the pressures about the body. I mean, look, you know, what is it? The Surgeon General just came out with that whole report uh, last week about how social media and uh, other online apps and TikTok and all these things that the people, I guess, under 24 are at their most suicidal than they've ever been in history. Yeah. Based on the pressures that they're seeing uh, around them about body image and status and all of that. So, I mean, I think we're living globally in the most heightened uh, version of that, uh, and then you put on top of a pandemic and then you put on top of that, you know, political mayhem. And then you put, you know, so I think, I mean, being 22 years old right now and having any kind of body issues, I mean, I can't. It's impossible probably not, not to have it. And, 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 and I made the mistake um, moving through my life, just assuming nobody else, uh, you know, assuming that a person who wasn't, uh, morbidly obese just had no body issues and even still today i can go like well let's be honest like your 15 pounds is not the same as my 250 pounds those those two things are not the same however 
you're still dealing with something and people who, who I think have zero weight to lose. And I look at you and I don't think I see any weight. Like, I don't, I don't think you need to lose weight at all, but you could see even a guy holding in my breath the whole entire time. Right. The dudes who are on Instagram, who just always look fucking glistening and great. Those dudes are more concerned about their weight than anyone, you know, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Absolutely. And when you were talking though, I don't know why, but I had that flash of when you were definitely going through some physical and other challenges when we like, I guess maybe 2000, early 2000s, would it be? Yeah. Or late nineties. Yeah. Late nineties. I just remember really being worried. Yeah. You know, and I was scared you were going to have a heart attack. So was I, I mean, I, I, that was one of the things that, um, I was kind of resigned to, I assumed I was going to have a heart attack. Uh, you know, I had I felt you felt that way. And that made me have so many mixed emotions because I really cared about you and we were becoming close friends and we were in this whole group of people. And I felt you were resigned to it. Yeah. And that broke my heart. I was utterly resigned to it. Yeah. Well, the, and that's a, that's a strange thing though, but, and you know, this from recovery that like, you can't make somebody, you can't flip the switch for them. You know, it's very, very, it's a tough task to try to get somebody to shift into that mode of healing. It just, I mean, I have not really had success doing that. What, and, and what also is, I think, now that we're processing our friendship on a podcast, I was also worried for you because I didn't know how to reach you. And I don't think you wanted anyone to reach you, at least consciously. I really didn't think so. And I felt you were very, I felt like you had a very double life going on about what you were doing publicly and what you were doing privately in terms of taking care of your health or hurting your body. That was what I sensed. Um, I think that's accurate. I don't think I was openly, I, you know, I hid eating a lot. I hid drug use. Like these were things that I very much thought of as private things that were taboo to some degree. So I wasn't openly doing that. And that shame, just that the secrets and the sh- just makes it, you just keep building, you keep digging down and down and down until you're literally six feet under. Right. Yeah. Because that shame just is self-perpetuating. Right. If you actually communicate and had people and you really were open about it, I think I think shame thrives in quiet and an absence of dialogue and and uh, being vocal about things. And I think that I sense that. But, you know, we're in our 20s and there's so much we have to give to other people because we're so obsessed with ourselves, probably more than anything. Um what happened? Because I don't think I know when you pivoted and, and what, what happened. It was really because of Brandy and, and really going like what I have this potential for a life. And, it, and, and you know, the, there's, when you talk about that pit of shame, there's also a thing of like the moment you are aware that you're in the pit, the pit already seems like impossible to climb out of. And then you didn't act immediately. And so then the next time you look at the pit, you're twice as deep. And do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? So like, uh, it just uh, keeps like you, you go to sleep and you wake up the next day and it's even worse and it's even worse. And then, and then if it was so profoundly something that couldn't be dealt with a month ago or six months ago or a year ago, then a year later, it's like, well, I'm not, I'm going to just not even look at this. And then Brandy comes into my life and I see this bizarre possibility for my future that never seemed like a real possibility. Like this happy life of a wife and kids. And like, I could have that. It was never on the table for me because I was, I was going through my life thinking I die before I'm 25 or, you know what I mean? I just, I just, I was resigned to that. I remember you saying that in a weird way. I feel like I remember hearing those words. 
it, or like it, brief, yeah like wouldn't it wouldn't shock me i i, I was I, I you know i i was a 500 pound junkie like that you don't see many of them they they don't they don't last that long if you, if you do it's a effing miracle that you're alive yeah and it was it was really just so you, you did know, it for love i did and it for yourself love. i mean i was like i saw myself in a in an alternate universe with a future that i was like oh shit i yeah i'll work really hard for that working really hard to to like be amongst my dark thoughts alone like i that was not something i was going to be able to do but working really hard to have this situation was worth it how do you okay so then how do you just jumping in i'm curious how do you maintain that because see i'm trying to really stay in shape right now again so i have a behavior i have a guy who's like a coach and he's like you're going to keep the shoes on the side of your bed so that when you get up in the morning your feet enter your tennis shoes you don't do anything else and you put on your gym shorts and you go that's the new strategy. What's been happening for me lately is I wake up, I get my shoe myself into the shoes, and then I walk around a lot in my house. And then the phone rings, and then there's email, and then there's a call, and then there's a this. But I still got the wardrobe on. It's like you're an actor and you're getting ready to go to set, but like no one's calling you to go to set. You're your own walking whatever. I that's where what's been my struggle but it helps literally getting out of bed and putting on the shoes so my question to you is you clearly have created this epic seismic shift in your life and you've obviously been consistent with it i mean i know you probably want to know what my habits are but i'm curious what are the three main things that you do that keep you like yeah. on i get some kind of uh, physical activity every day, whether that's the gym no what. or going for a walk, no matter what I am never allowing myself to get hungry in, in a way that that will allow me to have a bad decision. So like I found, a, you know, a long 10 years ago, I would wind up being starving and go like, Oh, I have to go buy food and go to the grocery store. And suddenly I've got a bunch of shit in my shopping cart that I'm going like, well, these are all bad decisions. And, and so when I travel, I bring food for the day of travel. When I go to work every day, I bring food. I don't eat craft services. Those are really the two I'm trying to think of a third for you, but those are really the two biggest ones that have had, have really helped me is that physical activity every day and then making sure I have the food I need. Don't go hungry to a restaurant, basically. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, don't start to cook when you're like starving, you know, or go to the market when you're starving. Right. Because suddenly it's a heavier pour of the olive oil and it's, you know, too much salt and extra cheese and all that stuff. That's, that's what I found. And the problem is my big crime is that I don't cook really. I mean, I'm, I'm just like, I'm, I, I'm coming out. This is like, I've come out of so many closets and this is like, this is like, a, it's a hallway. I live in a hallway. This is the next <laughs> yes, one. Closet after closet. Closet after closet. And this one, this new closet is that I don't cook at all. Yeah. Um, I took cooking classes during the pandemic to try to learn, but um, I haven't, this is a problem of mine, food, you know, this is a problem. I have a weird relationship with cooking at home. Yeah. And I, I will say like, as of today, the idea of going out to eat is exhausting for me because shit tastes so good because they're putting butter in everything. And, and, you know, there are secrets to making food taste delicious that aren't necessarily going to be healthy. So I find like, and Brandy likes to go out to dinner. So I do have to go out to dinner sometimes, but it is a, it is a bit of a, like a, I got to put my game face on it and know I'm getting steamed fish or something like that. How do you do that when you're working though on set? I bring my food. I will never go to work so with right now where you are. You have, you're going to be cooking at the, at the, at the hotel. Yeah. I have a food delivery company called trifecta. They, all my okay. food comes, but then, you know, I, I make sure I I'm taking with me what I need for the day every day. 
And this is prepared food that you don't have to cook. You just have to basically heat up. Yeah. So you have a whole system when you're shooting. Okay. Traveling. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And if I'm home, I do a lot of meal prep and I just stay on top of that. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. I think about the time that we were hanging out in the 90s, which like was definitely, I think, one of the last great parties. You know, I always say that because things have just gotten really dark and we had it really, I mean, really easy, which I think we kind of knew. I think I think I have a theory on this, Josh, and it's that we were right before cell phone cameras. Had there been cell phone cameras, none of that fun would have happened because it would have all been, you know, in court. Yeah, basically, I think we had so much fun. I think it all died when we were talking to each other. We weren't going out on looking at our phones when we went out to the bars. There was nothing to look at. You used a phone to call people back then. Well, the phone was like this big or yeah. that small. The razor, which, by the way, I'm getting a razor because I'm tired of my iPhone. I'm yeah. getting a razor. But um, I, we would sit, we would hang out, whether it be at a hotel or an apartment or whatever we all hung out or a nightclub or whatever. But we were talking with each other. Yeah. About, I don't know what the hell we talked about, but we monologued. Yeah. And well, that's all you did. Yeah, we sat around and talked and we went to nightclubs and then Jerry's Deli in in the Valley or on Beverly until five o'clock in the morning. I didn't ever make it. to. I was not the Jerry. I never was like I never got on the Jerry's like like ride. I was always like on the other side of the hill for some reason. I never made it to the other side. You were a canter's guy. Thank you. Bingo. (laughs) I mean. Let me stare up at that epic ceiling of fake plastic trees, if I may quote a great song. But honestly, like that was the life. Like, I mean, that 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 umbrella of like fall leaves that just you could just be staring up at at 5 a.m. tripping from I don't know what. All the stuff, all the all the chemicals. I mean, chemicals thwarted love i mean i can't tell you how many times i said it like canters like well that didn't work out <laughs> do you want to go meet at canters yeah okay. yeah we need to powwow we need to powwow yeah but we made it we're doing well oh yeah i mean we're doing well i'm scared about the rest of the world yeah let me ask you this one last thing and this is my question as we see and we have seen big pendulum shifts and with like something like weight, I go like, you know, it was always very, very thin was cool. And now there is a kind of a uh, conscious shift towards big is cool. Do you think that gets out of hand and that's that's can lead to the wrong message? And I'm not asking you because I have a fixed opinion here. I I appreciate seeing chubby girls who are very body positive. I like that. I, however, have some kinds of uh, feelings when Cosmo says, like, this is healthy and shows an obese person. Well, you know, it's like, is the term to fund the police really a smart term to help solve our social ills? I would say not because it sounds like one thing and people take it literally, right? right. It, 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 it's more nuanced what BLM or other organizations are saying, but to the rest of the world, it sounds like just have no police, right? You and I both know that's not what's behind defund the police. It's just really bad messaging. And I think most politicians that I like, or even Obama are like, this is the wrong messaging, right? I think messaging that, overweight is good is also the wrong messaging, right? But it's nuanced, right? It's it's more nuanced than that. And I think what we're in, what we're in right now is this period of extremism. We're in our adolescent phase of reckoning where everyone's an adolescent. So as adolescents, people are, there's, it's just black or white. Everything's extreme. Everything has to be a certain way. There's no adult nuanced thinking. 
No. He said a bad word about a particular race of people. I don't want him ever to work ever again. Goodbye. You know what I mean? It's more nuanced than that. Was he drunk? Did he have a problem? What is the reason? Did he really say that? Was it misunderstood? I'm not at all condoning any kind of racism or sexual uh, prejudice or anything, but we're in that weird phase now where everything is extreme yeah. and so punitive. And we're in, we're in that, I think every revolution has an adolescent phase and we're in the adolescent phase right now. And I hope we get to the adult phase where we can look at things in a more measured way and more nuanced and have, could have a conversation as opposed to just clickbait noise and the screamings of a 12 year old, you know, person. But I think, and, and I think that relates to what you're talking about, this embracing of bigger bodies and all that can get confusing because that, that messaging is dangerous to some degree, right? But I think what's the intention behind that, I think, is if you are chubby, it's not necessarily go eat and, and, you know, enjoy being unhealthy. It's don't hate yourself and don't, as we talked about, don't have shame about it. Don't shame yourself. Because as we know, and I know from very, having various addictions and stuff, shaming yourself for the thing you're doing is just going to make it worse. And just helps you spiral down even more. So I think it's about, to me, the messaging of celebrate your body, no matter what size, shape, color it is, is a is a very important messaging. The same way you would tell people who are trans or gay or genderqueer, fill in the blank, celebrate who you are, right? Yeah. You are enough. To me, that's... Well, I, I, I think you're spot on. I think of it in terms of like, I can only accomplish something if I believe that I can accomplish it. If I do not believe, if I, if I just, you know, like I don't believe I'll ever be able to fly, you know, without an airplane or something like this. So there's, so, so I'm never going to fly. If I believed I could fly, I might go and try and fly. Now that would have a bad outcome. I, I suspect. So I hope I don't ever believe I can fly, but like with, with smaller tasks that are realistic, you know, starting out with self-loathing and the position that you are a failure and you will always be a failure. Yeah. Okay. So then that's what you'll be. I agree with what you're saying. It's completely. And, and, you know, it's interesting when you, when I, you know, as an actor, when I started to write, I realized what are what are my skill sets? Well, I'm an actor. Well, I probably can write. Let me let me just I, I like I failed at a high school, even though I eventually got to college and grad school. I what is my strength here? Well, I know how to tell stories. I know how to do monologues. I'm just going to write like a monologue, like I would in an acting class. Like you use your skill set to survive, right? What you have innately in you. So one of the things that you said, what is my workaround and how have I gotten through stuff? Is that cliche of act as if? Well, guess what? I'm a pretty darn good actor, so I can convince myself of anything because I'm that committed, right? So, you know, if I, you know, get nervous about going to this event later tonight uh, for X amount of reasons, you know, and I'm feeling like, let's say it's a group of giant, you know, only gay men who are like half naked, let's say in theory, which that's not where I'm going. Maybe that's where I'd like to be going but that's not where I'm going. Um, <laughs> uh, I have to remember, I can act as if I can, um, you know, take on the moniker, take on the persona, take on the, that I'm enough. And if I have to pretend or be the character of my ideal self for a while to get through to the other side, then I'm going to use that. I mean, acting as if has helped me. And it doesn't mean to be delusional about who you are. You know, you're acting as if, but sometimes you have to do that. You know, like that other cliche they say in recovery programs, like fake it till you make it. it. It's the same kind of thing. You you have to, you know, it's like a writer. You have to believe you've got some story to tell that is a value to the world while you're staring at a blank page. Otherwise, how the hell are you going to have, you have to have some delusions of grandeur. Yeah. Or illusions of grandeur, you know, to uh, to do anything with your life. And some of those illusions are, those delusions are good because, you know, it's like, a, it's like on a spectrum, right? It's like a scale. You don't want to be on one side of it, like no delusions and you don't want to be deluded. So you have to like be right in the middle sometimes, you know, to believe uh, in a greater part of yourself. And sometimes you have to pretend to be that person before you've actually become that person. 
Yeah, I'll sometimes use like the most base thing to prove that I'm not totally useless. Like I can tie my shoes. And now, how, yeah, how do I build on that? I can brush my teeth. I can do these things. Oh, completely. And and I remember going to my first gay clubs and I was absolutely terrified. And this is such a reveal. But like, I was like, well, what would Madonna do? Uh, I'm Madonna going into the club. How am I going to handle myself? Well, I mean, I literally am the gayest person saying this. But the point is, that was literally going through my mind of, well, what would, you know, I, I'm going to just pretend I'm her walking in here and I'm going to have that confidence and I'm going to look at the world, you know, I'm going to have that kind of uh, edge and that'll help, you know, it's whatever it takes to um, tap into that part of yourself. I mean, look, I don't know. I mean, th- those are the things that have worked for me in the past, you know. They're wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing them with us. I hope it's helpful. <laughs> I think it will be helpful. And I think it, and anybody listening who can have a snapshot of you and me hanging out in the 90s, being just total badass Hollywood punks, that's a great picture that we've instilled in somebody. Well, maybe you can even, and we're still punk. Let's, let's, we're, we're bringing For it back. Sure. There, you could maybe you could post that picture. You know that picture you found of us? Yes. This will, that'll be the accompanying picture for this. You're there, and then I'm like in the corner with weird, like spiky hair, but I'm looking the other way. I mean, I don't know what I was doing with my hair. It was falling out, so I had to work with what I had. But that's a picture, man. And we are 18, maybe? No, I think we're a little old. I, I don't know. I just remember I wore Adidas sweatpants a lot. Yes. <laughs> to restaurants with sandals. I love it. <laughs> Josh, thank you so much. Thank you, man. It's really good to see you. Good to see you, too. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely.